Let's go. Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey team, Oliver here. This week I interviewed Sky Duncan, a fellow Kiwi who has gone on to lead the Global Designing Cities Initiative at the National Association of City Transport Officials, or NACDO. Sky has a wealth of knowledge about how infrastructure and street allocation decisions get made on streets around the world, and how micromobility can impact those habitats. It's been a while since we had someone who was really city-focused on the podcast, so I really enjoyed this conversation and hope you do too. In the news this week, e-bikes are taking China by storm, with sharing companies like Didi, Hellobike, Meituan and MeBike leading the way. According to data collected by Hellobike, nearly 300 million rides per day were completed on conventional bikes in the country in 2019, but more than twice as many journeys are made on electric bikes and electric scooters during the same year, or about 700 million rides a day. This parallels what we're seeing in New York and San Francisco with electric bike usage on those shared systems often two to three times more than traditional bikes. Exciting times. In the US, Chicago has announced that Spin, Bird and Lime will be the operators for the second pilot to deploy a total of 10,000 scooters starting on August 12th. Not only that, but e-bikes will be available to Chicagoans through their public bike share system Divi starting actually last week. Looking forward to watching this all rolled out and more data on this soon. And with that, here's Sky. All right, and welcome back to Micromobility. Uh, I have with us today Sky Duncan. How are you today, Sky? I'm wonderful. Thanks, Oliver. Thanks for having me. Oh, I, I well, this is we we were having a bit of a chat beforehand, and um, I'm 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 incredibly excited about this conversation. This is uh, this is great. <laughs> I'm as as others probably can hear. This is a, I have a fellow Kiwi with me. Yes, um, <laughs> <so> exciting. <laughs> it is. It is. Um, but look, Sky, for for those of um, yeah, the audience who you know listeners who may not know um i'd love for you to just take us through your story of how you ended up going from new zealand uh to what you do now uh as the head of the global designing cities initiative at NACDO. sure yeah no i'm happy to do that um so yeah really great to be here and thank, thanks for the time today and and also equally excited to be speaking to a fellow kiwi which i don't get to do much in in a professional setting so this is really awesome um so a little bit of background of my story so i you know coming early days born and uh, brought up in papua new guinea and then dunedin in new zealand um i you know finished school and ended up kind of wavering between uh, engineering and, and architecture. I always kind of had a, a passion for built environment and cities. And so, you know, eventually uh, found myself doing my uh, architecture degree and, you know, was still kind of in building scale, city scale at that time, um, did some ex- experience um, at Rate and Associates, a landscape architecture firm there working on Waitangi Park was one of my first big projects, which oh, was wow. pretty exciting yeah, cool. in Wellington with them. Um, and then shifted to Ian Athfield's office um, up the hill. And, you know, that I think under an incredible mentor that he was, you know, really encouraged us to kind of follow our passions. And, and that's where I think my, you know, real interest and passion for public space and cities and streets and neighbourhood scale uh, was kind of solidified. And through the opportunities he gave us and, and, and looking at different scales of projects in New Zealand, um, you know, I was encouraged to put an application to the Fulbright program to head over to the States and, and do my master's, which I was very privileged to be successful in. Um, and so I found myself in New York City um, at Columbia University uh, doing a master's in architecture and urban design. And, you know, it was just the most phenomenal year uh, bridging scales, bridging topics with a, with a wonderful group of international folks, incredibly talented folks from literally every corner of the world. So you kind of had this 
incredible diversity of perspectives and um, influence on, on what urban design means and what do cities mean and what are the different challenges that we're all facing in, in our various corners of the world. Um, so I, I finished that and then was, again, very privileged to be invited back to uh, be an adjunct professor there, associate professor, uh, where I worked for about six or seven years, then teaching in the same master's program that day. I was in, oh, which, uh, you know, was amazing because I felt like it was like getting to do... Um, you know, to do your masters over and over again, uh, the students were just phenomenal. So you're, you know, of course you're teaching, but you're learning so much um, along the way. And at the same time, that was kind of that my part-time gig and my full-time gig um, was working for the Department of City Planning in New York, um, and when Mike Bloomberg was mayor. And so it was there they, um, Amanda Burden, who was heading up DCP, had set up a new urban design division. So it was myself and three others. And we, I honestly, I totally honestly wasn't sure, coming from private sector, wasn't sure what it meant to be an urban designer for a city government. Mm. Um, my, my colleagues were in a similar situation. We were all coming from private sector. And so it was this phenomenal journey of kind of figuring out how do we, how do we use our skill sets of um, bringing complex thinking and visualizing built environments and different city systems together to the policy environment um, at DCP, working at you know every scale you could think of, from kind of regional thinking down to the scale of a, a curb cut on a sidewalk, um, touching everything from affordable housing, uh, rethinking industrial waterfronts to become uh, public parks. Um, to public plazas and streets and mobility. And then also a lot of um, really interesting stuff around city policy that, uh, and it's a little geeky, but the, the New York City zoning resolution, you know, was kind of written in the 60s. So a lot of what the, the rules and regulation of what was shaping the built environment was often quite outdated. Yeah. And so looking the, at off that... the back of like Moses, right? Robert Moses. Yeah, exactly. Years. And so yeah. you kind of had these little bits of Jane Jacobs with these kind of big picture Moses pieces. And, you know, it was a wonderful time with um, Mike Bloomberg's kind of leadership around sustainable cities and the kind of broader mission of, listen, we've got a million new people moving to the city by the year 2030, how, what is that going to look like? How are we going to function? Um, and so we were able to kind of embed, you know, themes of broader sustainability, of renewable energy production, of uh, energy efficient facades, climate change, resilience, um, and public health issues into built environment policy. Um, and so that was just a, you know, incredible experience, learning experience to kind of get to see how that was done, um, you know, and I by no means would claim that everything was perfect, um, but, you know, some really interesting things happened there and I think set precedents, you know, because it was New York, you know, a lot of other cities around the world kind of looked to New York and looked at what they were doing. Um, they weren't always the most innovative, but, you know, they're pretty public. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, that also became a gateway um, into learning about many other cities and other parts of the world and how they were doing things. And I'm a huge proponent of um, kind of borrowing and stealing ideas from places and adapting them to various contexts because I think we just, you know, we don't have the time to constantly reinvent the wheel. And so we, we have to kind of look at what's happened, what worked, what didn't, um, and kind of be nimble in how we shift that. So I did that for about eight years. And then about five years ago, um, Jeanette Sadek Khan, who was the head of the transportation agency, DOT, um, when Mike Bloomberg was mayor, um, she had shifted to a group called Bloomberg Associates. And at the same time, she was the board chair of NACTO. And she wanted to launch a new arm of NACTO that was an international arm, a global arm. And for so people she, who are sorry, yeah, NACTO is... Yes, <laughs> another great acronym in this world. <laughs> so it's the National Association of City Transportation Officials. Yep. Um, and it's essentially a, a membership organization of um, originally just transportation, but more recently now transit agencies as well. So there's 81 in the North American context that kind of come together in this safe space and do what I was just saying, you know, a lot of these lessons learned, peer-to-peer -peer mentoring, what's working in your city, what are we challenged with, um, how do we have this collective um, advancement of how we can, you know, shape our cities. 
So we have an annual conference. Essentially, it works like a giant therapy session where everybody comes together and reminds <laughs> oh, ourselves of what we're fighting for. <laughs> yeah. Why are things taking so long? Um, yeah. You know, kind of commiserating about the challenges, but also really celebrating the successes. Um, and something NACTO is known pretty well for is the design guidance uh, that they produce to really update practice and and the urban street design guide was a guide um, actually that Jeanette kind of led this work it was prior to my time but what was happening was national kind of road guidance or highway guidance was getting applied in cities right so the the designs that were facilitating the movement of many vehicles at high speeds were getting applied in cities, which is a complete mismatch to the goals of great cities, which is spaces for people, places mm-hmm. to stick and stay and move around in a nimble way. So producing the Urban Street Design Guide was kind of this really innovative approach that was creating a new blueprint of how to design streets for cities, but it was done by cities, by city government officials who all contributed to that process. And then uh, like an endorsement campaign then from city mayors and then eventually states and governors and then eventually back up at USDOT, um, you know, kind of provided this permission slip to do things differently, quite frankly. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's really where we saw the the huge shift in the US or North American context of, you know, more protected bike lanes, uh, dedicated bus lanes, better walking infrastructure and, and so forth, which achieves obviously many different goals. So I was kind of brought on to take some of those lessons, but take it global. Um, so our first very tiny minor little task was to write a global street design guide, <laughs> which in the very quickly in the process, I, I thought, oh my goodness, what am I doing? This is a completely impossible task. Um, but we kind of followed the model and, you know, ended up with a group of experts from over 70 cities and 40 countries to kind of pull best practices, kind of abstract those in a way that was very accessible and visual so that cities could see themselves in it. Um, you know, we wanted to be able to kind of empower leaders um, or kind of excite leaders and then be technical enough to inform practitioners mm-hmm. and and empower and access communities so they could start to speak this language of, of streets and sustainable mobility and demand more of their city government. So kind of approaching it from many different directions. Um, and so, we were really excited. Sorry. Uh, uh, yeah, no, no. I'm just really curious because I don't have that much of it, and I imagine a lot of the listeners also don't have that context of understanding how this would have been done else otherwise. So, w- if you're coming to with a kind of a global design guide for cities, in mm-hmm. some ways, th- have they adopted a kind of a very traditional um, American car centric? development guide everywhere else in the world and so you're kind of coming in with something different or how how, yeah okay yeah okay that's exactly so in some cases they don't have guidance in some cases they've adopted guidance from other countries in many cases that is the u.s so you know you're getting cities in parts of the world who are using you know 1960s uh maybe that's a slight exaggeration but like pretty outdated um codes and regulations to shape their cities and so it was kind of the same story that had happened in the US. Either the guidance didn't exist or it was outdated or it didn't really provide enough kind of variety or options that could deal with the realities of different contexts, even within a single city or a mm-hmm. single country. Um, and and what we realized very quickly is that internationally, streets – Urban streets are shaped by many different folks, right? In some countries, it's it's the consultants that might drive what the end product is. In other countries, they have very strong uh, community advocacy, and that plays a very big role. In others, it, there's maybe a little less, uh, you know, full democracy, and it's very top-down, uh, driven by leaders and a single vision. So we wanted to try and kind of bridge these different audiences. Um, so it the guide, which is a free download, I should note, for anyone who wants to take a look and very visual, it's, it's 400 pages, but there's tons of lots of uh, before and afters and visual models to make it pretty accessible. Um, and so, yeah, so that anyone might be able to pick up and say, kind of point at something and say, oh, I want that. Why don't we have that in my mm-hmm. neighborhood? Or you could actually get some kind of proper dimensions of, of what is needed. And 
So we, we released that in 2016 and then also kind of emulated that endorsement process on the national side. And we've since had over 100 cities and organizations put their name towards the GSDG as kind of a new blueprint of how to do it. And, you know, it's amazing because it does act in that same way as a permission slip, right? So a young engineer or a young planner or designer sitting in a room full of let's say a lot of Mr. and Mrs. knows, um, you know, no, we can't do that. No, we don't do that. No, that's not the, the way we do it. You know, if the mayor of a city has endorsed that guide, it's not a legal document, but it gives that little bit of confidence and permission for that young person or that innovative thinking person to open up and say, or raise their hand in a meeting and say, look, why can't we do it like this? This is what our mayor is endorsing. So we're kind of hoping to shift the practice in that way. Um, and then we've also, we've worked on translating it. Uh, we've released Spanish, Portuguese, Mandarin. I think we're about to release Italian. We've got Japanese, Turkish, Russian, something else in the mix as well. Um, and then what my favorite part is that, you know, yes, it's cool to have these books and these guidelines and stuff, um, but we really focus also on kind of shifting from paper to practice. And so mm -hmm. we've funded... Um, to give them technical assistance and we work around the globe um, to then work with city governments to kind of apply these strategies on the ground. We've done a lot of work in Brazil and Ethiopia and Colombia and India and Italy more recently. Um, so a lot of time uh, flying around the world working on that. Um, I am in New Zealand at the moment, not doing a lot of that travel and doing a lot of this uh, remotely, yep. but that's, that's a bit about the, the background. I'm happy to speak a bit more about, um, you know, why we did that. Um, if I can pause there or, or, or give you a Well, I, I've got, I've got so many questions, but I really, <laughs> uh, the part, the part, so there's a couple of things. One, I, uh, I'd really, um, you know, this, uh, the very notion of, of going and, uh, designing a global street guide when we kind of have seen what hadn't worked before obviously it was it's, mm -hmm. you know it's just a challenge of being able to say you know we want to build these things around the world um and yet at the same time have something that's sort of you know you don't want it to be a monolithic document that just ends up being like we we stamp out and every city looks the same so yes you know, oh, yeah. yes <laughs> yeah. it's the 400 pages <laughs> yes exactly well it's just like that's, that's the problem how do you do something past. that <laughs> works for Accra in Ghana and Amsterdam in the Netherlands <laughs> absolutely absolutely um but like I and I'm aware that it's probably just the you know the challenge that it is of your job of just trying to work out what you know or how do you encourage those you know practitioners on the ground to be able to say I'm going to pick these parts that work well for us yeah um, exactly uh, yeah um, but there's a sort of a wider question there I think in general because you're the first one of the first people that I've had on who's actually involved in the sort of the urban design aspect of cities as we think of them mm -hmm. and the transport aspect of it um, because I th especially at a global level and, and, and I you know obviously this is a podcast about micromobility and I'd, I, well, I want to get into that but I just want to get get a sense of um, you know, what are the challenges that you see coming down the pipe for large cities? Because mm -hmm. um, one of the things that Horace and I have talked about on the podcast in the past has been that you've got a lot of cities that until now have been built. But actually, if you look at where the urban growth is going to happen, it's going to happen incredibly quickly in a couple of, you know, and in, in predominantly in like, if you look at it, the major growth is going to be in Africa and Asia. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that those cities won't be able to adapt. They won't be able to do the same things that we've done to move people around in our transport systems elsewhere. You know, you don't have the... the yeah, they, the, the, we the cannot go down that, the... <laughs> take a car each and, and down that track. It's not going to Yeah, work. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so what, you know, what are you seeing in those conversations around how they're thinking about transport systems? Um, yeah. Yeah, and, 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 and obviously, like, because, uh, yeah, I do think that there's a part there, we're excited about micromobility as a part of it, but, uh, and, uh, but I'm aware of the need to contextualize it in a kind of a wider wider thing of what's the transport planning going to look like in those places? Yeah, sure. Well, yeah, and look, I, I love this stuff. You know, this is what we live and breathe. And, you know, we are obviously in an urbanizing world, right? We've got more people moving to cities and that is going to continue to happen uh, for the next few decades. Uh, we've already passed 50%, right? So the majority of folks already live in cities. Um, now, what that means among many, many things is that we have kind of less space and less resources per person 
um, in in a city. So it, it is good for climate change to have a level of density that we're not, you know, having urban sprawl over the entire planet and continuing to take up our, a lot of our critical resources. Um, but it does mean we have to think about things a little bit differently in cities because every square inch of space has to work harder to serve more functions and more people. And so for us, of course, we know, and I mentioned this earlier, you know, there's a, a need for comprehensive coordination across land use, the mix of uses, um, the density, the transportation system planning. Um, but one area that we see as a huge asset because uh, global cities is a pretty big topic. So the area that we focus on is streets. Now, streets, many of your audience may know this, but, you know, we like to remind folks that streets are actually our largest continuous network of public space in, in our cities, which means they're one of the, like a huge untapped asset um, that we see this kind of unbelievable potential in in helping cities look at how that space can be transformed to better serve their communities um, and address a variety of, of challenges. So it's not the entire solution, but it's part of the solution um, is to rethink the space. Now, of course, that means, you know, how is that space moving people um, through the streets every hour, or every day, you know, which transportation modes are we prioritizing? But also how do those spaces become places in themselves that invite people to stay and spend time? Um, you know, increasingly in, in denser cities, you don't have as much public open space, right? So your street mm. is your front door. It's the front door to your business. Um, it's a place that you spend a lot of time. So one is we've got the spatial asset that we want to help cities kind of rethink, which is their streets. Um, and the other is looking at, and you mentioned some of the challenges, right, is the kind of multitude of global crises that we are currently facing as, as a planet. You know, of course, right now, that is the, the, the COVID-19 pandemic. But, you know, the environmental challenges, how we manage our water systems, climate change, climate resilience, our kind of increasing temperatures and urban heat island effect. Um, you know, we've got ridiculous systemic inequities in who our streets and neighborhoods serving and who they're killing. Um, the Literally the survival, our survival, right, the public health challenges We've got, you know, 1.35 million folks dying every year on the streets. It's, it's now, actually, it's, it's unbelievable. It is now the number one killer of young people around the world of ages 5 to 29. Like people hmm. prime of their lives is dying on our streets. At the same time, we've got, you know, we're seeing the repercussions of our design and policy decisions around our streets and transportation resulting in, Nine out of 10 people around the world breathing polluted air that we know is going to contribute to premature death. And we've made these spaces so uninviting in many cases that, you know, we've now got close to 40 million people dying prematurely from chronic disease each year, a large mm. cause of which is physical inactivity, right? Because we've designed it out of our daily lives. So we, in, in our work, we really see streets as this kind of conduit um, and, and kind of as a platform to help layer in different solutions that can help cities address this kind of multitude of challenges simultaneously. Because something that's the right move for one challenge is actually a great thing for many other things. Um, so if we plant trees, for example, that's helping us improve our air quality, improve our water quality, also providing shade, reducing urban heat island, making it more enticing to walk, to bike, people being more physically active. And, you know, it's kind of a system that can work uh, very comprehensively together. So, you know, we, we really kind of work on this premise of, of kind of inverting what we see as a very outdated pyramid where for decades the goals of um, engineers and planners and designers and transportation systems has been that the car is king mm. and we need to, to kind of move as many cars as possible. And, of course, I'm sure you guys know, you know, around induced demand. We think we've thought that more space for cars is going to solve our congestion problems, so we give more space. It works temporarily. and Scott. Yeah, exactly. More, more tunnels, tunnels, more highways. It's... Um, so we've now got the evidence to show that that doesn't, it's only a temporary solution. It's not going to get us to where we need to get to. So we kind of invert that outdated um, pyramid and put people first and then prioritize, um, you know, sustainable mobility options. And 
and encourage cities to ask what's possible of that space because it's very easy to kind of just go along with the status quo and you know it's rare but certainly uh, there are times where we get not a blank slate but we get chances to get you know do an entirely new street design but actually the bulk of our cities are already built yeah and so if we don't kind of help cities give them the tools to rethink and reimagine how they can transform that space then we're never going to be able to address, you know, those plethora of challenges that I was kind of mentioning earlier. So we we kind of go in. We we believe a kind of a comprehensive approach is it's not it's not fast, but um, that it's really important. So our team does it. We do a lot of time uh, capacity building. So we work with you know designers and engineers and academics and consultants, kind of saying, okay, look, this is what you might have been trained to do. And here were the problems you were trying to solve, mm-hmm. but the world's a different place now. And our the problem statement is not move more cars. The problem statement is now move more people in a sustainable and safe and convenient and enjoyable way. So we need to give the tools for folks to be able to do that in a different way. Um, but also talking to, we spend a lot of time also working with uh, police and also journalists, right, to help understand that broader communication around this. Mm. Um, because when when cities, well, sorry, when when citizens see change in their communities, um, they're often up in arms. It's often the the loudest How voices. You? How dare you take away uh, my car parking? It's <laughs> yeah, the, the parking one is a particular oh, way. Because I mean, I'm it's really like we curious. were born with a right for a parking space. You well, know, it's you crazy. Know, Sky, what else yeah. is what else is that road going to be used for if you don't just park your car <laughs> oh, there? How long have you got? I can I can give you a million. Well, I, actually, parking but, is one that I really want to dig into because um, you know horror. Uh, one of the things that we talk about a lot is that infrastructure question, right? And saying, look, if people are really going to adopt micro at scale the big thing we need is the quality of infrastructure that make makes people feel safe they've got separated cycle lanes or micro mobility highways or whatever you want to call them um, but that that I that that oftentimes comes away from car, comes away from street space allocation mm-hmm. at the moment is given to car parking and yet you can design for something but the economics of it are just you know, it's such a challenging political thing to be able to go take away. And I, you know, I, we've got this local Absolutely. issue at the moment of like advocating. For, I mean, I'm working with a whole group of people here at the moment to advocate to take some of that away. And people, it's just like, how dare you take away 150 car parks in a city of 29,000, you know? Mm. It's, it's, I'm just curious because the, um, you know, I feel like that's, you know, reading about it from overseas, everybody everywhere has that problem of trying to take out car parks yeah, to free up Absolutely. space allocation. Like, where are you seeing this done well and how are they having that conversation in a way that's successful? Um, look, there's a number of places. I mean, parking in it in of itself could be uh, uh, another kind of two-hour podcast or maybe a one-week podcast. Um, but, <laughs> you know, it's... There are cities that have done it well, Oliver. I think, you know, there are the city, you know, even across the ditch in Melbourne, there's examples where they kind of took away, you know, a small number of uh, parking spaces in the downtown each year, you know, famous examples like in Copenhagen. Um, you know, it's I, I do find it insane that places like New York still has free on-street parking, um, which is insane because it's some of the most valuable real estate in the world. But slowly you're starting to see even cities like Mexico City, right, doing parking reform. And, you know, this is they're now changing the regulations around the the number of car parks required for development. So this kind of goes back to parking is definitely one key issue, but it goes back to, you know, that earlier statement I was saying about around breaking down silos and working with our colleagues who work in transportation planning, but also um, land use and density, right? So the people that write the numbers and codes around how many parking spaces are needed per building or per business, that's something that's written in like black and white text that dictates what is built in a city. And sometimes it's very outdated. So another area that we try and work with cities is exactly things like that to go in and identify once we do it, we've done the trainings, right? Or we're doing trainings to know what's possible and then go in and look at where is there missing design guidance or where is there outdated policies that exist that we can look at helping cities kind of 
update. Um, and that might be everything from not the ones we've worked with, but, you know, we see great examples coming out of, you know, Stockholm and, and, and London in terms of congestion charging or uh, toxicity charging, uh, parking policies. Um, it sounds dumb, but even things around like curb cut policies, like where can you put a curb cut, right, is written somewhere in a city code. What's a curb cut? Uh, sorry, a curb cut is where like where a, dry, a car is able to cross over a sidewalk uh, and yeah, go okay. into a garage or a, or a parking lane. What do we call it? Driveway is the word I'm looking for. Is it is, um, that, is that big a de- is that big a deal? I don't I wouldn't have thought that that would be that significant. It is actually. Yeah, no, it's it's a pretty big deal when you look at some parts of the world because you if you're building safe walking infrastructure and then you're allowing curb cuts to go over that and you don't have an active frontage along the edge of that sidewalk, then you're essentially having, you know, you're you're crossing you're not the cars that come over mean that some cities build sidewalks that act more like a roller coaster, yeah. right? So you're going up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down the whole time you're going along because that's what the policy is saying to build. So instead people walk in the middle of the roadbed and put themselves at risk of getting killed and, and many other things. I so what you're saying. Okay, yeah, geeky policy change and design guidance plays a really key role. But something else that we find, or a couple of things that work together that we find are very, very effective, both for parking, but also for a plethora of um, challenges around design, is implementing interim interventions. And so we'll sometimes, we literally go out in the middle of the night and, you know, paint the street. Sometimes it's with chalk, sometimes it's with paint. We work with the local city, city officials, sometimes local artists and nonprofits. Uh, or, or local kids where we can to transform that space of a street, either closing it, narrowing it, taking an intersection. Um, and what it does is it shows people a different reality. It gives them a chance to see what their street might be like, right? A space that it's like seeing is believing. So a space that previously was gray asphalt filled with speeding vehicles and like parking on either side of the street Suddenly with a bit of paint, some political will, some people coming together and a long weekend, um, you know, you can have spaces for gathering. You might still allow buses and bikes to go through. You'll now have space for local businesses to spill out. So you're taking that real estate of the street and reallocating that in a way that adds so much more value to a broader diversity of people who live and function in cities. Um, now, one of the key things with that is then collecting metrics, right? So we're really good globally at counting cars that are moving, mm-hmm. <laughs> but we're not that good at counting the other people and other uses on our streets. And so if we're trying to shift to have a fair and more equitable conversation around the value of our streets and what that space should look like and who it should serve, then we need to have better numbers um, for that. So... The way that might work is you go in, you transform an intersection, you might have a couple of local businesses that say, look, there's no way you can do that. Those two parking spaces out out in front of my business, you know, is the lifeblood of my business and I'm going to go under if that's not there. Right. So you have these kind of anecdotes that exist. Now, if we do these interim interventions that can be undone if they don't work or tweaked, um, then you can measure the impact of that. So you mm-hmm. can do qualitative surveys, you can measure the speeds of different vehicles, you could measure before and after of noise quality, air quality, number of people there. And this is what one of the, the, the most, one of the most famous examples is Times Square, which our, our board chair, Jeanette, was in charge of, you know, where they closed that, the busiest intersection in the world to, uh, to cars, and everyone thought it was completely ludicrous how but, dare you? you know, yeah, exactly, how dare you? <laughs> but what they were able to do through the metrics is show that actually vehicles moved more efficiently, way more people were there to spend the money, right? Because people spend money, not the cars themselves. So if you can increase yes, the totally. throughput of people through a space as opposed to the throughput of cars, then, you know, that's one of the key benefits, economics, Economically, but you've also, you know, Times Square showed improved air quality, improved um, noise, the bus ridership actually went up. So you kind of, you're able to help cities shift away from anecdote and towards analysis. 
And once they have a local precedent, so this is stuff we've been doing, as I said, everywhere from Addis Ababa to Fortaleza, Sao Paulo, Mumbai. If they've got a local precedent, then they're able to to say, ah, here's how we might be able to scale up or here's how we might be able to do this across our city. Because if they don't have something local, you can show them something in Copenhagen or New York and everyone goes, whatever, like we're not New York, we're Wellington or we're not New York, you know, we're Delhi. And so you, you, when you get local projects on the ground, you can help show local folk what's, what's possible. So that's kind of a, a big part of our work is the, the kind of guidance development and then coupling this with the, um, with the technical assistance. And we've, we've recently, actually next week we're, we've, we've got the Global Street Design Guide, but next week we're launching a supplement to that called Streets for Kids. Hmm, so that takes a cool. particular lens um, from not only kind of safety and accessibility, but looking at comfort and convenience and also kind of how our streets can entice, uh, you know, be inspirational and educational and, and kind of foster cheesy things like love and joy um, in, our, in our lives. So that's kind of another whole project with, that we're then working with uh, 12 international cities with technical assistance and trainings. Um, and, and our team also just recently released a, another resource that's called the Streets for Pandemic Response and Recovery, which is drawing on a lot of the emerging practices that we're seeing with cities, um, you know, kind of both provide emergency response and shift into recovery in some spaces um, using the streets as part of the solutions to the the global pandemic response at the moment. Hmm. Hmm. So I can hear you, you know, as you talk about this, the, the street space allocation is obviously that's such an important part. Um, when we're talking the wider context of moving people around cities, mm-hmm. what are you seeing that's coming down? I mean, again, micromobility. I, I want to try and contextualize it again, but it, it, it's around, you know, people have traditionally just tried to build out cycle infrastructure. What has worked and hasn't worked there? And then are you seeing anything come through in terms of the new e-bikes and e-scooters and how are they influencing your thinking around around that? Yeah. Look, I, I mean, I think it's incredibly exciting. I think a lot of the, the kind of micromobility world um, that we've seen kind of pop up hugely in, in the last couple of years, right? And it, it's moving pretty quickly. Um, this idea of kind of helping provide mobility choices to people is, is fabulous. Um, there's no doubt about that. But I think what's really important to remember is that there is no one solution that is going to act as a magic bullet to kind of solve all of these challenges that we face. So if, if we can help have a broader goal for cities around more choices for more people that are reliable and affordable and convenient, um, and, you know, the idea is that that can also be places to walk, uh, places to roll, places to take transit, and actually, you know, tying those different systems together can be, you know, is just so fundamental for us to kind of think about the longer term and the bigger picture. So for us, as I mentioned earlier, the kind of spatial side of it is key and giving this, dedicating the space for um, kind of safe movement. So in the same way, you might have the fanciest bus in the world, right? But if that bus is sitting in the same congestion or traffic that every other car is, it's going to be really hard to get people out of their cars and into the bus, right? If you suddenly have a dedicated bus lane and the bus, you're able to now take a bus and be at work in 15 or 20 minutes versus an hour in traffic, you might start to make different decisions around that, right? And that's through spatial allocation. And the same thing goes, I think, when we're talking about cycling or rolling or micromobility. Um, what we do know is we really have to provide the safe infrastructure for folks to choose that as an alternative option. You know, we're certainly always going to have the dudes in Lycra and the hardcore cyclists and scooter riders that are going to do it no matter what. Mm-hmm. But until we actually switch in our minds who we're designing that infrastructure for. So, you know, until it's your eight-year-old niece or daughter or your kind of 75-year-old mother or grandmother that you would be comfortable to put on that facility, 
then we're not doing our job properly, right? So that's a really kind of key part of this. And, and, you know, we can say that and we can show pictures of that, but we also know through evidence now that, you know, protected infrastructure is one of the, the, the kind of most um, significant factors in kind of effective uptake of different forms of rolling, right? Whether we're talking about scooters or cycling, um, having that safe space to do it. There's a lot of people who will do it no matter what, others who are interested but kind of really cautious, and then others that say they would do it if they, if they had protected infrastructure. So, you know, I think the other thing we, we need to think about with, with micromobility, with it being kind of part of the solution, is that, again, you know, we're, we're pretty good at our standard mobility modeling of people who are commuting back and forth, you know, in one direction um, and planning our transit in our cities for that. But we're not that good at embracing really the kind of complexity of how families and how different people use cities at different times of day and have different needs. And, and I think it's really key that we're not kind of pitching one mode against another yep. because it, it, it may very well be that, you know, if you're zipping across town for a meeting that a scooter is perfect for your needs, right? Or that a docked bike share system that is maybe more affordable than electric might be really critical in providing choices, mobility choices in underserved communities. Or electric bike share might be really great in hilly cities or for, you know, longer commuting distances. Um, but, you know, other modes are critical if you're, they're not going to work if you're carrying a few kids around or if you've got a disability or you're moving in a group. So I think we need to kind of move away from like this kind of, internal competition between you know like different modes of moving about when we know that in order to kind of reduce our kind of car reliance we have to make that harder and we have to make the real costs of driving um more visible and more realistic but we can't do that in isolation we have to do it at the same time as subsidizing and prioritizing all these other modes that can work as a system and, and give people choices. Um, so, you know, yeah, it's not, a, it's not about being anti-car, but it's about being pro-choice yeah. and, and being realistic about that. And, and we know that the short kind of last mile, the shorter trips, um, micromobility is a wonderful, um, you know, addition to that. And we've, you know, seen great examples of, of cities around the world you know, increase their rolling infrastructure. I think the whole world is still figuring out what the what the right term is for the infrastructure, the protected bike lane yeah. slash rolling infrastructure. So, you know, our Paris's and Milan's and Bogotas and Dublin and Sevilla, all of these cities that are actually some of them using really great um, great moves in their pandemic response and recovery to kind of scale up projects that they and their networks that they already had in the mix. Um but there's also some really cool innovation that's probably not as fun for some of your techie audience. Um, but even with some of the old, you know, more traditional bike share systems as part of micro mobility, where we see, you know, in Milan that they put kids seats on the back of their bike share or their electric bike share system, you know, that makes it a little bit more accessible to folks. Mm. Uh, cities like Fortaleza in the north of Brazil have been doing phenomenal work. And they took, you know, a standard bike share system like we see in Lyon or Paris or New York and actually adapted it to their context so that they had a three-part system where they had, you know, well, four-part, the public one. They created a version that worked for local corporates and offices and city government officials. They created another one that was for long-term rentals so that um, the underserved communities on the outskirts of the city could take a bus, then take a bike, take it home, sleep with the bike in their yard or their apartment, and then come back the next morning to get transit. Uh, so really simple but creative thinking. Uh, bike share programs for kids that they launched there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's really exciting to take a lot of these kind of more traditional systems and challenge them and, and think about them creatively, not only in the kind of tech side of it and the innovative um solution side but how the systems work work themselves that i i there's a part in there that's re- i mean 
my small brain sometimes goes, ah, it's so frustrating because I want there to be one answer. I want there to be a panacea to <laughs> or this. And yeah. micromobility is very attractive in that regard. You know, it's super low cost. Sure. It's going to be the connective tissue. It's going to do all these sort of things. Um, and so I love hearing, uh, you know, love and hate, hearing that that is not going to be necessarily the case. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what, what I would love, though, is, is an understanding, you know, you're obviously in conversations with cities all the time. And... and where, where I think advocates of micromobility are probably going to be in the, you know, and I'm definitely one of them. So, you know, I'm, I'm having these conversations. I don't think one in some ways we feel like we're probably well represented and, and there's a little bit of a, oh, you're just like bikes. And it's like, well, actually, no, if you look at the job to be done, if you look at the way that the vehicles are used, they're actually quite different as a category of vehicle. And so, you know, whether or not that argument you think holds any weight and then, Two, as a, you know, as a result, how should we be thinking about engaging and talking to cities in a way that is not just a, hey, um, you know, we want to come and ride these things everywhere and everybody kind of gets annoyed with these new befuddled scooter riders, you know, running down people on the streets and things like that. How do we, how do we have a constructive conversation about the value that, that this as a new technology can bring? Mm-hmm. No, look, it's, it's a... It's a very good question. I think part of it is acknowledging, and I, I said this before, it's not a panacea. It's not a magic bullet. It's it's a really, really helpful tool to have in the toolbox. But I think it can't, It there's a, I don't want to say kind of arrogance, but there's this kind of attitude that is sometimes seen as like, oh, this is going to solve all of our problems, right? But the reality is it's, it's not. It's not going to solve all the problems. It may help address some of the problems. Um, and that that doesn't mean that it's not a very valuable tool to have in the toolbox, right? Um, but there's a reality, you know, we were chatting before. I mean, if you look at cities like Bogota, right, they're moving 8 million people on their streets every single day. And they have like back-to-back, like sometimes like 50 back-to-back you know, bi-articulated transmillennio packed buses to do that at, at pretty relatively high speeds and high capacity on their, on their trunk lines, right? It's twice the population of New Zealand. So if, now they also have scooters, they also have bike infrastructure, they also have, you know, so you, it's not, if you went in there and tried to say, oh, this is going to solve all the problems, it's not going to work, right? People are going to laugh in the face because they're like, no, no, we have 8 million people to move <laughs> and you can't put 8 million people on scooters. And so I think one part of it is is helping broaden the understanding of this as a tool, a really powerful tool in the toolkit um, and to think about it within the complexity of, of how cities are functioning and, and the kind of broader goals of, of sustainable cities and great places to be. Um, on a smaller, more day-to-day scale, I think there is this reality that cities are facing, um, you know, with a lot of these companies, with the scooter companies and micromobility coming in, where again, it's like, oh, we're just going to dump it and see how it goes, right? Yep. But yep. but the, and I, I think now we've learned a lot in the last couple of years and we've certainly seen now and we know that these systems work most effectively uh, when they're done in conjunction with the city, right? To think through some of these things. And we've got the kind of super slow moving ship that's trying to be steered in another direction from the city government side. And then you've got this like hyper fast, impatient, amazing private sector tech coming in, getting very, very frustrated. And of course there are frustrations on both sides. Right. But I think it's important to remember that the city, like city governments have a responsibility of, of the most comprehensive and complex public good of the residents or the, the people that live there. So sometimes it does take a bit of time to work through some of the challenges. And, you know, I know for us at NACTO, some of the recent um, publications that we've put out, um, and there's much more online for folks who want to have a look at this, but, you know, help to guide how these systems can work in terms of permitting, right? It can be very complex and very arduous. Um, but, you know, sometimes we do need regulations and, and, and rules in place, Um Cities often really want have a, a, 
they're really wanting to work on the systemic inequities, right? And and trying to understand how underserved communities can be um, better served in, in their cities. Issues of parking, and as we've talked about a lot here, the use of the public right-of-way, right? The use of that space. If there's no regulation around that, then we get, you know, it would totally be filled with cars or businesses would be able to take whatever space they wanted, right? So keeping a public good... Um, in terms of the use of that space, you know, having guidance around where people can ride. Um, you know, I know there's the kind of technology around geofencing, not super reliable, but, you know, thinking about distribution and pricing and data. And I think, you know, the pendulum will swing. It's swinging in extreme ways where I think companies are saying, oh, no, this is too much data. Cities are trying to figure out what's the most effective data to ask for. Um, but there hasn't really been a playbook for this, right? So folks are, are learning together throughout the process. Um, and of course, something that's really important um, for cities is obviously the safety provisions, right? And and with these kind of newer vehicles, there's a lot to take in in terms of the, you know, the smaller wheels and the higher cent- center of gravity and, and the different build quality and brakes and speeds that these different vehicles um, can go. So, I, you know, I'm kind of optimistic that we can get somewhere that's a really great balance. Um, mm-hmm. we, we have, as I mentioned, you know, our national team has been working very hard on working with North American cities. We haven't done this as much on a global scale yet, but more specifically around scooters and um, micromobility. But, but we do kind of bring it back to this idea of being technology agnostic, right? So that our goal is to support cities in kind of mobility choices and systems that are safe and affordable and convenient and ensuring that the infrastructure um, can help support that, you know, and I, I have to acknowledge, you know, like it's, there's a lot of these technologies and, you know, I'm a big fan of, you know, how is the more kind of electric vehicles we can get. That's great. Um, the, you know, different types of, of mobility is, is wonderful. But, you know, when we do look at some cities, I think we have to be careful that we're reminding ourselves, as you mentioned very early on, Oliver, about where the huge population growths are happening in the world. Yeah. And, you know, we're we're working in cities like Addis Ababa and Mumbai and, you know, they are sometimes struggling to get the most basic infrastructure like a sidewalk built or maintained or to have reliable energy to keep the elevators on in buildings. I mean, I was stuck in an elevator three times on one of my last trips to Addis, (laughs) you know, or to keep the street lights on, um, you know, and just kind of maintaining asphalt or repairing potholes or markings is a very, very real uh, reality, I think, that they're facing. And so there's the built infrastructure side of it, the cost side and an equity side you know if it's whatever nine nineteen dollars an hour right to to ride a scooter or hire a scooter and someone earns two dollars an hour um you know who's able to afford these in 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 many of the contexts that we're actually seeing you know a family of five riding on a two-wheeler motor scooter so um you know, and then of course the reliable energy for these electric vehicles—it's—it's it's great in places like New Zealand where we're close to eighty percent renewable energy. But you know, where that energy is still being created by polluting coal plants—that's um, quite a different story. Yeah. So it—it it, it is complex. <laughs> it's hard, and I know it's probably very annoying to not have. Oh, I mean, it is annoying, answer. but it's also like not nothing we can do about it, right? I mean, it's the complexity of the world that we have to deal with. There is a kind of the, the, there's one final question that I want to uh, put to you, which is, you know, I think there's a there's an interesting intersection here, and in some ways, I feel like mobility because it's evolving quicker than, for example, built environment or other things, um, mm-hmm. and and it is such that it's such. You know, it kind of, uh, uh, it's about street space allocation, but it's also about intersection of different people and wanting to set rules and all these sort of things. It strikes me that in some ways, it's the it's the piece that will really test our ability to adapt quickly as cities going forward. And that technology itself is actually moving faster and faster and faster. And mm-hmm. that the democratic processes or the structures and the bureaucratic processes that we have to be able to adapt our cities around it are themselves becoming more and more strained 
with that pace of change over time. And I'm just mm. curious if you have any reflections on that. Is it am I am I correct in in, in asserting that that you know the mobility is probably the one of the fastest areas of movement and change, um, and and you know anything that you're seeing around how cities might be thinking about allowing for and setting themselves up to be able to absorb that new that new those new technological shifts yeah look I, th- I think you're right Oliver I think it is one of the industries that's really kind of encouraging cities to look at their internal processes um, to look at where things are getting clogged or you know stopped or slowed down in the process I think there is a broad acknowledgement that you know, many people working for cities know that working for cities and changing policy can take a really long time. Um, and that this there is something really valuable in some of that time, right, in, in a democratic process of, of getting input and of, um, you know, understanding the context and the actual needs of a community before going in and dropping things on them and assuming that's what they need. You know, that's... so. I think there's somewhere in between, right? Because of course we can't, we know in reality that if we asked every single person what they want, you know, there is literally no way we would ever get agreement, right? That's not how the the world works. Um, So we can't get kind of paralyzed to the point of inaction in the processes of trying to get input. I think, and I, I do think what's happening or what, what we've been seeing around the micromobility and the technology world and mobility world, it's very exciting. And I think it is forcing cities to up their game a little bit, right? And to, you know, sounds dumb, like do things like digitize a lot of stuff that was otherwise maybe on paper before. And I think it, quite frankly, actually the global pandemic right now is doing the same thing. Um, so, you know, you, you're starting to see cities hire, um, you know, innovation officers or technology officers within their DOTs um, so that, you know, I think there are a lot of folks, maybe like yourself, maybe not, you know, people who have been and seen this world from the tech side who have those skills but are not driven by perhaps bottom dollar financials. They're driven by broader public good and public mission and, you know, more of that expertise is now able to kind of start emerging within city governments to the point that, you know, you can be having kind of a, not a fairer conversation, but a, a conversation across private sector and city government that is of a more similar level, I think, to be able to know what each other's talking about a bit more. Yeah, yeah um, absolutely. So I think that's exciting because I, you know, as someone who worked for city government, I'm a big believer in in, in that in the kind of broader public good and working towards that mission. But I, but I'm also very realistic about the, the frustrations and delays that can occur and the time it takes to kind of implement change. And so, you know, that not on the, less on the tech side, I would say is a big part of what we're trying to do in cities is go in and kind of unlock the potential um, and equip them with the skill sets um, and the tools to kind of take what they're seeing around the world and be able to identify what works best for them and adapt those systems and apply it in a way that makes most sense in terms of fighting for a more equitable society in in their context and, mm. and for the needs of their communities. Mm. So we're not there yet, but yeah, I think it's a, it's a good goal to be working towards. Yeah. Well, it's just so, I mean, it is, it's such an exciting time, I think. Um, and certainly from the research that I've been doing and the conversations I've had with, with a lot of transport engineers and people who are tra- in the traditional transport space, they're like, look, um, this is a time, you know, we've had 60 or 70 years of this was the answer and it was pretty stock standard and everybody kind mm. of, you know, and, and, and all of a sudden a lot of that's up in the air and everybody's kind of rethinking how, how that's done. And obviously the, 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 the design guide for cities is, is a really important part of that and part of that kind of more general conversation. I think everybody's kind of recognizing like we can't keep doing things how we had been doing them. And, mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. I think, um, 
Well, look, I am. Um, yes. We're up against time, but I just want to say thank you so yes. much for this. this, this, this oh, is, you're welcome. I can keep going for hours. But. Yeah, I know. I know. Oh, no, especially look, on parking. Don't get me started on parking. I know. I know. And you know, just just briefly, Oliver. I think you know, as a reminder, because I know it can be if you're not working in this every day, it can be very overwhelming to embrace these complexities. And you know, sometimes it is much easier to be contained in a silo and to to you know work away in your travel lane, so to speak, towards a goal. Um, but I, you know, I just want to encourage your listeners and others out there that, you know, whether whether it's someone working for a private sector consultant or a city official or a advocacy group or you're just at school and starting to look at what to study, you know, to try and embrace those complexities um, because I think, we, you know, we've seen the repercussions of decades of staying in silos and, you know, just knowing that just because you don't, have one answer that's the magic bullet it doesn't mean that what you're doing and what you're fighting for isn't of value and that it isn't a really critical puzzle piece in the much bigger picture of what we're trying to do collectively to to fight for better cities and a healthier planet um and you know no no single person can do that on their own no well and so reminding ourselves of that is it's well, we humbly important. suggest that micromobility might have something to offer in that regard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's one of the one of the puzzle pieces. Um, yes. So. Excellent. Well, hey, thank you so much for this. Um, for folks who might want to track you down, are you on Twitter? Yes, I am. Uh, Sky J Duncan. Uh, Sky has an E on it. S K Y E. J Duncan, and also at Global Streets. Um, we haven't been super active lately, but um, we'll. Uh, get a lot more active in the next few weeks actually with some publication releases so awesome awesome well thank you so much for this and look forward to having you on at some point in the future i'm sure yeah well thanks again for the opportunity and really lovely to chat cheers cheers